0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I am, I am really looking forward to opening God's Word with you, so thank you for, for joining us today. So last week we read through First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 9. And then we discussed verses 3 through 5. So this morning, I'd like us to read over verses 3 through 9 again, and then we'll talk about verses 6 through 9. So go ahead and, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, and beginning at verse 3. And and once again, I would encourage you to have a, a copy of God's Word in front of you. And so if you don't have one with you, we have a table on the back with some Bibles. Feel free to grab one. Again, that is First Peter 1, 3 through 9. And if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? God's word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Would you please pray with me? Father God,
0: thank you once again for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that when life can feel hard or like a struggle, that you are our strength. Thank you for orchestrating our time this morning to, to come together, to sing these songs, to rejoice in your provision to our missionary partners, to enjoy communion together, and now to open your word together. Each of these are what we needed today. And it is your grace and mercy that we can come together during this time. We ask your blessing on our time now in your word. Help us to approach your word with humility and a willingness to be taught. And we submit this time to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Charles Spurgeon once said, if none of God's saints were poor and tired, we would not know half so well the consolations of divine grace. When we find the wanderer, who has nowhere to lay his head, who can still say, I will trust in the Lord. Or when we see the pauper starving on bread and water, who still glories in Jesus. When we see the bereaved widow overwhelmed in affliction, yet having faith in Christ, oh, what an honor it reflects on the gospel. God's grace is illustrated and magnified in the poverty and trials of believers. Saints bear up under every discouragement, believing that all things work together for their good. And that out of apparent evils, a real blessing shall ultimately spring. That their God will either work a deliverance for them speedily or most assuredly support them in the trouble as long as he is pleased to keep them in it. This patience of the saints proves the power of divine grace. There is a lighthouse out at sea. It is a calm night. I cannot tell whether the edifice is firm. The tempest must rage about it, and then I shall know whether it will stand. So with the Spirit's work, If it were not on many occasions surrounded with tempestuous waters, we would not know that it was true and strong. If the winds did not blow upon it, we would not know how firm and secure it was. The masterworks of God are those men who stand in the midst of difficulties, steadfast, unmovable, calm amid the bewildering cry, confident of victory, The one who would glorify his God must be prepared to meet with many trials. No one can be illustrious before the Lord unless his conflicts are many. If then yours is a much-tried path, rejoice in it, because you will be better able to display the all-sufficient grace of God. As for his failing you, never dream of it. Hate the thought. The God who has been sufficient until now should be trusted to the end. The God who has been sufficient until now should be trusted to the end. The God who has been faithful in the past can be trusted with the future. Those who are believers in Jesus can often look back on their life and count the many instances of God's faithfulness. Oftentimes, however, when we are facing trials, those are the very things that we forget or stop focusing on. So last week, we covered verses 3 through 5, and we talked about God's great mercy. We discussed that because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, we have a living hope that is kept for us in heaven. We're reminded in verse 3 that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. In verse 4, that God is keeping an inheritance for us in heaven that can't perish or soil or fade. And in verse 5, that God is keeping us for that inheritance. So there is an inheritance and an inheritor. God is keeping the inheritance perfect for us and... He is keeping us in faith so that we will not lose that inheritance. And then in verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter says, In this you rejoice. So the first question we face is in this verse, and we touched on it last week. And the question is, what is the this in verse 6 referring to? In other words, what does this this refer back to? Well, I think it's clear that this is looking at what we talked on last week. The work of God and his grace by which we have been saved to a living hope through the resurrection of, of Christ to that inheritance that Peter described as incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away and is reserved for us in heaven. We rejoice in that promised inheritance that will be ours in glory. We rejoice acknowledging the past and looking to the future. Because verse 6 keeps going and says, in this you rejoice. We rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, we will have trials. We will have struggles. We will experience suffering. How do we rejoice in that? What does rejoicing look like when we're talking about trials or suffering? Again, we remember verses 3 through 5, and we have joy in the great future, God promises us in his commitment to keep us for it and us for it. Keep it for us and us for it. In other words, our joy is based on our future with God and the certainty that we will make it there. Christian joy is almost synonymous with Christian hope. That's why Peter says in verse 3 that we are born again into a living hope. And then verses 4 and 5 describe the content of that hope. And then verse 6 again begins, In this you rejoice. In this you have living, vital, life-changing hope. In this you rejoice. Our hope is our joy. But Peter tells his readers that the inheritance and the news of their having been born again to an eternal reward should produce in them exceeding joy. The Christian life in all circumstances is to display the fruit of the Spirit. And in our text, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit that is joy. The joy that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit is not a mere fleeting sense of happiness. It is something that produces within us an abundance of rejoicing. In this promise, we greatly rejoice. The apostle says, however, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. See, God is after our mature holiness. So he brings us trials and hardships to refine and prove our faith. God's proven faithfulness in the past is meant to be a bridge to help us cross over trials knowing that it is simply the next harder but better instance of God's goodness to us. We remember God's goodness in the past in order to remind ourselves that the hard things in the future come from this same God. God was good in saving us and he is still good in refining and strengthening our faith with trials. We see in our text that there is a purpose or an intentionality with our trials. See, in verses 3 through 5, the point is that the inheritance is out there waiting for us. It's imperishable, it's unfading, that we are being kept for it. So that no matter what trials we face, we can look beyond them to the sure future that is coming and, and take heart. It's going to all be worth it. In verses 6 through 7, the point is different, namely that the trials themselves have a part in getting us ready to enjoy the inheritance to the fullest possible measure. We don't just look beyond the trial to the to sure hope. We look at God's design in our circumstances and see how God is working all things together for our good. So Christianity is a life of tremendous joy. First, because we have a great and fail-safe future to look forward to beyond our distresses. And, second, because God has a design to increase our joy in the future by means of all of our trials. When we look at verses 6 through 7 of our text, Peter describes our trials in five ways. First, when compared to eternity, they are brief in duration. They just last a little while. Now, to be clear, that does not mean that they will not last a lifetime here on earth. Not all suffering is solved in the hospital or through a few hospital or doctor visits. Not all trials go away simply by writing a check. Some do or can, but others, they may last a lifetime. But when compared to eternity... They are temporary, or they only last a little while. When our focus or our mindset is with an eternal perspective, it's easier to think this way. But when we are struggling with a trial, it often becomes all-consuming, and in those times, it's hard to have that perspective. Second, they are varied in form. There are all kinds or various kinds, our text says. So we are slow to fall into the trap of comparing to saying that your trial is nothing compared to mine or to thinking that trials can only be the really big headline-grabbing events. Just because your trials are different than the next person doesn't mean that you cannot be weighed down by your trials. It doesn't mean that your suffering is not hard. Many of you have heard me quote David Pallison before, who said, suffering is suffering because it hurts. Third, our trials have a necessity. You you had to suffer. Recognizing that God is sovereign and that his plans are always better than ours, we can trust him. Even when life takes a turn we didn't expect or we face trials that are challenging. Fourth, Suffering proves that our faith is real or genuine. Our text says these have come so that your faith a, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. We grow in our faith through suffering, and we gain wisdom through our trials. Fifth, suffering will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Because suffering has a limit and a purpose, we can still rejoice in it. Now, why did I say earlier that there is a purpose or an intentionality with our trials? Well, I get that from the phrase "If necessary" in verse six, and the word "that or, or "so that" at the beginning of verse seven. Verse six says, "In this you rejoice." though so now for a little while, if necessary." You have been grieved by various trials. What kind of necessity is this? Who or what is making these trials necessary? The answer is the same one that caused you to be born again. The answer is God. Peter makes it plain that Christian trials only happen if God wills it. For example, in 1 Peter 3.17, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Or, again, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, Peter is teaching that the sovereign will of God governs all the distresses that happen, that happen to us, and therefore... The design in them is not ultimately the design of evil men or the design of Satan, which are real enough, but it is a design of God. So when Peter says in verse 6, if necessary, you have been breathed by various trials, he means if God deems it necessary. But why would God do that? Well, this leads us to the word that or so that at the beginning of verse 7. This gives the reason why God would deem it necessary that we be grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What this verse does is spell out the design of our distresses. The design is that our trials would refine the genuineness of our faith the way fire refines gold. It is this refining process that makes the gold so beautiful, and the same is true with our faith. So there is a design in your distresses as a Christian. Gold, God wills them, and he does so for your good. Peter's comment about gold in verse 7 explains how trials prove our faith. First, gold and faith are both proved by fire. Literal fire refines gold, and the metaphorical fire of adversity refines men in their faith. And second, while gold was the most precious metal to the ancients, faith has greater value. Like every other created thing, gold is perishable. But our faith is imperishable, since God preserves us in it. Now, this does not mean that God leaves us to deal with the trials on our own. No. Peter says that you are agreed by various trials. But in Christ, you have been given something imperishable. God promises to guard you by his power and to make your faith more genuine and true as you pass through fire. Paul says that our Father and Lord Jesus Christ comfort us in all our afflictions. We see this in 2 Corinthians where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Your troubles lie within that promise. God will comfort and strengthen you, giving you a growing ability to help others in whatever troubles they face. So we shouldn't view our trials as if they're just the Lord just, just throwing us out there to see what will happen. But that he is lovingly giving us what is needed to strengthen us and grow us and giving us what is needed to encourage others around us. Now, my intention this morning is not to sound like I'm making light of trials or minimizing the pain. I'm not saying that they are not a big deal or that they are not hard. In God's design, our trials are grievous. They are distresses. The word in verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials, means distressed or sorrowed. And note this, it's not a contradiction when Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You are rejoicing, though you are grieved. You know this is not a mistake, because Paul said he experienced this very thing. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, he says, he lives as sorrowful, same word, yet always rejoicing. In God's design for our trials, there is a place for real, authentic grieving and distress and sorrow. But this experience is fundamentally altered from the way the world experiences these things. We see a design in it all. And so to quote John Piper, our root stays planted even though the branches thrash in the wind. And the leaves remain green, and the fruit keeps growing, because our roots go down by the stream of God's sovereign grace, and we trust Him for a good design.
1: Let's let's look at our text as a whole again.
0: Verses six through nine. It says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls.
1: What do we think about this? When we read read that or we hear that, do you believe it?
0: I mean, do you really believe it? I confess that in putting this message together, that thought kept running through my head. I know this to be true, and I I believe it in my head. But do I really believe it in my heart? Is my belief in this evident in my
1: life? When I face Trials
0: of various kinds. Do people around me see any different reaction from me than they would from a non believer? Oh, maybe in some areas, maybe big things, yes. But what about the various small trials? Does the tested genuineness of my faith, when tested, is it found to result in praise? and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Or is it found to
1: result in frustration, or bitterness, or hopelessness? Instead of praise, does it result in grumbling and complaining?
0: The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, This verse is saying that your faith is more precious than gold. Why? Because gold perishes, though it's tested by fire, but genuine faith does not perish. It is being kept for us by God. A genuine faith, when it's tested by fire, does not perish. But instead, it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It does not perish, but instead it grows stronger. I stand before you today as a person that some would say knows a thing or two about suffering or trials. And I would like to say this. And some of you, you may not like this. But there is a concerning thing that I notice with many Christians in suffering. Not all, but I do see it a lot. Among some who profess to be Christians, there's often a sense of entitlement. We think we are entitled to not suffer. We think that we live this this good life. We give money to church. we, We pray at times. We go to a small group. You know, there was that one time when we stopped and let the person cross the road ahead of us, even though we could have kept going. And despite all of that,
1: God is going to allow suffering in my life? Me? We can stand in judgment
0: of God with an attitude of, how dare you make me suffer? Look at all that I've done for you. We might not say it, but we think it. Or at least we think, okay, Lord, you better have a really good reason for this, for my going through this, because this doesn't feel fair to me. We can actually stand in judgment of God and make God answer to us instead of our being in submission to him.
1: When I read verses 3 through 5,
0: I find it humbling. I was dead. But by God's great mercy, he caused me to be born again. Many of us, we, we're okay with verses 3 through 5. We're okay with the idea of God's sovereignty in verses 3 through 5, that by God's great mercy, he caused us to be born again. That despite our doing nothing, bringing nothing other than our own sin to the table, God saves We're good with that. You might
1: agree and find that humbling. But for some of us, if we're honest, that humility can
0: disappear when we get to verses 6 through 9. If we abandon that humility when we get to verses 6 through 9, then we have failed to fully understand or grasp verses 3 through 5.
1: Let's be honest. Most of us, most of us want a sanctified life to come through ease. We want to grow more and more like Jesus
0: through a life of comfort. We think that if we live a life where we never have to call out to Jesus, never have to cry out to him, to live a life where we don't need to rely on his strength, on his provision that we will somehow also grow more and more aware of our need
1: of him. We tend to see our trials as
0: punishment, and then we assess whether or not the punishment is fair. We can see our trials as God just being cruel, or not caring, or forgetting about us. There's not an explanation for our hurt, so it must be that God doesn't really love us. It must be that God gets some sort of sick satisfaction out of my hurting.
1: But the truth is that there is a higher
0: design that we are going through. We're going through this trial to refine and purify us, to prepare us for the inheritance that is to come. We can arrogantly assume that we are ready now, We can assume that our faith is strong enough that we don't actually need more sanctification. But our text says differently. It says, in this, you rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It may be necessary so that the result will be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In God's design, our trials are like the fire that refines gold from its impurities. Verse 7 again, so that they tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. When gold is melted in the fire in the fire, the impurities, they, they float to the top, and then they can be removed. When the refining fire is over, the gold is even more valuable. So it is with your faith in God. You have faith. You trust his promises. But there are impurities in it. There are elements of murmuring and pessimism. And I I speak from painful experience. There are tendencies to, to trust money and position and popularity alongside God. Dirt mingled with the gold of faith. These impurities in our faith hinder our fullest experience of the goodness and the greatness of God. So God designs to refine our faith with the fire of trials and distress. His aim is that our faith be more pure and more genuine. That is, that it be more utterly dependent on him and not on things and other persons for our joy. A great illustration of how this works comes from the experience of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. Paul describes this very refining design of God in his distress, where it says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Instead, we... We felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead.
1: To rely not on
0: ourselves, but on God. To rely on ourselves is to rely on the gold that perishes. But we are instead to rely on God who guards our faith the fire that burns off the parts of us that think we can do it on our own. It burns off the parts that make us think that we don't need God, that we can rely on our own strength. So often in our lives, the times that our faith has grown the most is when we are facing those big issues where there is not even the illusion of control. God took away from Paul an ordinary prop of safety and let him feel an almost overwhelming sense of human abandonment. This was the fire of 1 Peter 1.7. Not because Paul, God didn't love Paul, but because God saw Paul's faith as gold worthy of refining. When God is refining your faith with trials, your faith is worthy of refining. Our faith is designed to survive to the end. This is an amazing promise. We have a faith that hopes, a faith that is secure, protected by divine power, a strength of faith that is not only made stronger through trial, we have a proven, tested faith that finds its fulfillment in the purpose and plan of God in a union with the Lord Jesus Christ that is appearing. At which time, we receive glory and praise and honor from God. That goes right back to the reason we were saved in the beginning. We were chosen so that we would be brought to eternal glory.
1: Looking again at our text in verse 8, though you have
0: not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, and filled with glory.
1: Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You have not seen him, but
0: how you love him. To say that you love him, to say that you love the Lord is more than just an acknowledgement of a bunch of facts. But you love him is to have a relationship with him. You believe
1: in him. You trust him
0: with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith is refined so that on the last day, at the final consummation of the kingdom of Christ, it will be the occasion of praise, honor, and glory. God values your faith more than he values your old or your present comfort. Peter is moved by the fact that the readers of his epistle loved Christ despite never having seen him. Our Lord himself said in John 20, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the eleven in the upper room, He rebuked them for their unbelief, for their hard-heartedness. They had not believed the testimony of the angel and the women who were at the tomb. God places a premium on faith that is the substance of things not seen. Inexpressible joy is a reality that human words can never adequately describe. That joy, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is beyond description. It defies description.
1: So how do we respond
0: to trials, the big ones or the small ones? Do trials refine our faith and lead to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Or do they reveal anger and bitterness
1: and, dare I say, entitlement?
0: Again, this is not saying that that we cannot grieve. This is not saying that our trials cannot be hard. Our response in the midst of the trial may be sorrowful or grievous. But what is our response down the road?
1: Have we grown bitter over our trials?
0: Or do we look back and praise God? Praise His faithfulness. Praise Him for guiding us through the trial. Praise him that our faith was not lost in the trial. When you have gone through significant times of suffering or trials, and in the end, your faith is stronger, and you can rejoice in the grace of God in that. You can praise him for his mercy to you. Then when we face another trial, bigger or smaller, we can remember God's faithfulness for seeing you through it the last time and trust that he will do it again.
1: Tomorrow is May 2nd. That date
0: may not mean very much to most of you. But that date means a lot to my family. It has significance to my family.
1: On May 2nd of 2005,
0: it was also a Monday, just like tomorrow. On that day in our lives, we faced a trial. Our faith was
1: tested by fire.
0: It was on that day, on May 2nd of 2005, that we were in a hospital room, surrounded by friends and family, singing the song, It Is Well, and saying goodbye to our five-month-old son, Luke, who the Lord was taking home
1: it hurt, we cried, we grieved, yet we could also sing. We could sing, it is
0: well, it is well with my soul. Not because of our strength, not because of something special about us, but all because of the great mercy of God and his power that guarded our faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that in the pain, in the short life of our son, we rejoice, thankful that the genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold, did not perish, but instead results in praise and glory and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: So I don't stand here speaking to you in theory,
0: I stand here acknowledging that we are not too entitled to suffer because our Savior was not too entitled to suffer. Because of the mercy of God, I know my faith was strengthened through suffering, that my faith continues to be strengthened through suffering. I can look back and acknowledge that my faith, it needed refining. And while if you'd given me a list of options,
1: That's not the one I would have picked to refine my faith.
0: But I trust in God and that his plans are better than mine. I would have picked comfort, but God knew I needed a trial. Does this mean that it didn't hurt? No,
1: of course not. Does this mean that it doesn't still hurt? No,
0: it still does. With that eternal perspective that says these trials are not random acts from an unloving God, but they grow our faith and love in our Savior. That because of God's great mercy in causing us to be born again to a living hope, we rejoice. We pray that our faith continues to be found to result in praise and glory and honor. That though we have not seen Jesus, we love him. And though we do not now see him, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory.
1: And so we can sing.
0: We can sing all glory be to Christ our King. His will be done. His kingdom come on earth as is above.
1: Let's pray. Father God,
0: we come before you now in prayer and we we acknowledge that you are good, that you are just, that you are holy. We acknowledge these things while also confessing that we at times forget these truths about you. We sometimes think that our plans are better than yours. We often think way too highly of ourselves and we think, much too little about you. Lord, as we consider this topic, we know all too well that there are many in this room this morning that are struggling for various reasons. We know that many are struggling, and yet we may not even know about it. Father, help us to be a body that values you enough to be willing to be vulnerable with each other, that we will show grace to one another, encourage one another, We cherish your grace as we confess that we have longed too much for the comforts of this world. We have loved the gifts more than the giver. And your mercy, help us to see that all the things we pine for are shadows, but you are substance. That they are quicksands, but you are a mountain. That they are shifting, but you are an anchor. We plead your forgiveness on the merits of Jesus Christ, accept his worthiness for our unworthiness, his sinlessness for our transgressions, his fullness for our emptiness, his glory for our shame, his righteousness for our dead works, his death for our life. And we pray in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.